This morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we will start right at verse 1. But in order to do that, we have to get some sense of Pauline theology where the question of the law is concerned. This morning we sang on purpose, free from the law, oh happy condition. Because Pauline theology is all about the fact that in Christ's single sacrifice, the law is done away with. Now, for 1,400 years, the Israelites had been keeping the law of Moses, the law that had been prescribed for them at Mount Sinai. Specifically given to Israel, there were no Australians or Eskimos or any other people group at the foot of Mount Sinai. There was the nation of Israel, and they were codified as a nation by this law. And so all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were required to keep the law, and that went on for 1,400 years. So you can imagine that when Paul started advancing the theology of Christ's finished atoning work and freedom from the law, that it had a much greater impact on his Jewish and Israelitish audience than it has on us Gentiles 2,000 years after the fact. We hear it and we say, well, yes, that's Christianity, that's how it works. But in the first century, that unique time in history when this transition was happening from 1,400 years of the law of Moses to Christianity and freedom in Christ, there was a lot of pushback. There were a lot of people who were zealous for the law, who clung to the law. That was not only their tradition, but when you think about the law, you have to realize that God imposed this law. He didn't just say, here's some good ideas, here's some good suggestions, you all can keep it or not. He said, this is my law, and when you keep it, I will bless you, and I'll give you your land, and I'll give you freedom from your enemies. I'll even take care of the wild animals. I'll do everything to keep you safe and secure. But if you don't do it, I will curse you and curse you badly. And so there was a curse attached to the law, which is why it's so important that in Pauline theology, he can say, Christ became a curse for us. Christ took on our sin debt. And when he died at the cross, he not only forgave all our sins, not only paid the ransom price necessary for our sin debt, he also did away with the law. Paul says that the law was nailed to the cross and that Jesus took it out of the way. Now, the law was made up of much more than just the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments formed the covenant between God and Israel. The Ten Commandments are called the words of the covenant that are written on the tables of the covenant that are put in a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. So it's very clear that God was forming a covenant with Israel based on the Ten Commandments. But then far beyond the Ten Commandments, you have 613 rules that cover everything from religious worship and animal sacrifice to mixing fabrics or what's sexually allowable or not moving a border stone that would 
designate where land began to, to making sure that there was a border on your roof. So if somebody was working on your roof, they wouldn't fall off. So it really was a very complete societal law. It covered their religion, it covered their society, it covered their personal activities. And so those 613 rules were very specific. And they were imposed on Israel, and according to James, if you missed in any one part of the law, you were guilty of the whole law. And if you were guilty of the law, if you didn't keep the law perfectly, perpetually, all the time, from birth to death, if at any point you broke the law, you were guilty of the whole law and therefore under a curse. And it's not insignificant that if you go back and look at the last word of the Old Testament, it is the word curse. Because the Old Testament brought about the law that brought about the curse, that cursed Israel, that drove them out of their land, that took them through multiple uh, different incursions, different nations that kept them enslaved or took them into bondage, took them out of their land. God really did curse the Israelites as a result of chasing after other gods and not keeping the law. So that's the way that the Old Testament wraps up, which is very dark. And then you open the book of Matthew and you read about this new lawgiver, the one that Moses talked about, the one that Moses said there will be a new lawgiver. God will give you a new lawgiver who's like me, but the people will flock to him. The people will hear him. And so Jesus could walk around saying things like, you've heard it said. By the law, it said this, but I say, and he could start laying out the standards of Christian behavior and Christian life and following my commands, and he made himself the new lawgiver. So unless you see that real clear distinction between the new covenant in Christ's blood, the fully sufficient atoning work of Christ, unless you see that over against the law, you'll get confused because you'll try to mix and match the two. And you'll try to say, well, I believe in Christ for the most part, but I also need to bring some law in. I need to bring some Moses in for my further sanctification. Yes, Jesus saved me. And yes, faith in Christ gave me the Holy Spirit, but I also have to do some law in order for my salvation to be accomplished. So we don't mix and match here. We make a very clear distinction between the law that was a covenant that God made with Israel and the new covenant in Christ's blood. At the Last Supper, he was very specific. When he handed around the cup, he said, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. He was forming a new covenant when he died on the cross. And so Paul advanced the theology that said now that Christ has fully atoned for all his people, now that Christ has fully justified all his people, that whom God foreknew he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, furthermore, whom he did predestinate, those he called, the ones he called, those he justified, the ones he justified, those he glorified, as far as Paul was concerned, this is all a done deal. This is finished. Christ has utterly and completely, fully saved his people. And therefore, Paul could say, though he was a Jew, though he studied the feet of Gamaliel, though he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, as touching the law he claimed blameless, nevertheless, 
His theology was the law is utterly and completely done away with in Christ. Not abolished, but fulfilled. And because the law is now fulfilled in the finished work of Christ, we are truly, genuinely free. We are blood-bought. We are fully redeemed. We are justified. And therefore, Paul could say what he's about to say at the beginning of chapter 4. I said all that, all that background, so that you can understand Paul's perspective in what he's about to say. Because he's going to say, I don't think there's anything against me. I can't think of anything that's against me. Which is remarkable for a person who's been raised on the law. Which he calls the ordinances that were against us. And yet he could say, there's, there's nothing I can think of that's against me. Because Christ fully, sufficiently paid my sin debt, I can't think of any sin against me. I can't think of any curse against me. I can't think of any way that I'm an offense to God. I'm in Christ. God is completely satisfied with Christ. And therefore, I can't think of anything that I can bring up against me. In fact, he goes so far as to say, I don't even judge my own self. It's so full, so complete. The satisfaction that Christ proffers, the, the satisfaction that Christ accomplished on our behalf is so full and complete that I don't think most of us really get it. Because every one of us, as I've often said, are legalists at heart. We want to do something. Because if we have something, at least we can point to it and say, yeah, but I did that. I've got that. But the Pauline theology is Christ is all sufficient. Christ is the all and in all. When Christ finished and accomplished his work, then he saved all of his people utterly and completely. And any amount of credit that you think you can take, again, according to Paul, is payment that God has to give you like payment on a debt. Like you could say, I've been so good, I've done so much, you owe me. You owe me heaven. You owe me justification. You owe me that glorification part because I did good stuff. But that's to lessen Christ. That's to reduce what Christ actually did. And so Paul, again... A lawkeeper. Now, now, by the way, think about Paul, who did persecute the church, who when Jesus came and spoke to him on the Damascus Road said, it's hard for you to keep kicking against the goads. You know that the Jewish religion is all about and leading to me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. He says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute not the church, but why do you persecute me? And of course, Paul says, who are you? I'm Jesus, whom you persecute. And then, of course, he blinds him, and then he sends him to the very man he was going to uh, prosecute and find as one who was in the way. And so you're talking about a man who was actively torturing the church, who was Active in holding the cloaks at the stoning of Stephen. You're talking about a man who was zealous for the law. And yet, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 4, he could say, mm, I can't think of anything. There's nothing against me. 
I'm not judged by any of you. I don't care what any of you think of me. And I can't even judge myself. The one who judges me is God, and he's the one that justified me and glorified me. You get some sense of the mind shift that Paul went through? He went from torturing and killing all those that were in the way, Christianity. He went all the way over to Christ is fully sufficient. What Christ has done satisfies God utterly and completely. And that is a gigantic shift in thinking that I think we all, to this very day, still wrestle with. We know Christ did it. We know he's all. We know he's sufficient. But boy, we sure like the idea that we're good enough. So let me save you the trouble. You're not. You're just not good enough. Especially Isaiah saying that all your righteousnesses are filthy rags. Filthy, bloody rags. You've got nothing that you can take to God and say, here, justify me on the basis of what I did. The only way to be fully righteous, satisfied, justified, glorified before God is if you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, it's none of the law. Not any of it. So that's why Paul, of course, was accused of being antinomian. That's why in the book of Acts, when he went to Jerusalem and met up with James and the others, they said, it's, it's rumored about you that you teach people everywhere to abandon Moses. Because that's what his theology did seem to lead to. Now, Granted, in Pauline thinking, those Jews that were under the law that were still in that transition period, he granted that they were still zealous for the law and he was bringing them along. That's the book of Hebrews. But where the Gentiles are concerned, you and me, who weren't at Mount Sinai, who were never under the law, who were never part of that covenant, read the book of Galatians. Paul withstood the Judaizers, didn't even give them an hour's time to advance their notion that the Gentiles in Galatia needed to be circumcised and keep parts of the law. Paul said that to the Gentiles, again, never part of that covenant of law, and therefore their full, complete salvation is wrapped up in Christ. And that's us. That's Thaddeus. I just picked Thaddeus because he had a tie on. That's Leon. That's all of us who are Gentiles. We are brought to God through the finished work of Christ. Okay, have I beaten that point into your heads yet? Because you've got to see it in order to understand what Paul's about to say. There, that's all introduction. You know, I said that last week. I said that was all introduction. And afterwards, the three McInturf girls came up to me and said, just before you said it was all introduction, I turned to my sister and said, that was all introduction. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they haven't been here long, and they already are in on the joke. Chapter 4, 1 Corinthians. Okay, so let a man regard us in this manner. Remember that there were factions. There were people who said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. And so there was disagreement among them, and Paul was trying to create unity among them. So he says, when you think about me, when you think about the apostles, when you think about anybody except Jesus, 
Don't put them on a high pedestal as if they're something. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, I've written some words up on the board. They are Greek words that I've written in English letters to make them more readable. I don't do a a lot of Greek unless it's going to help us understand. And in this case, I do think it helps us understand. When Paul says we are servants of Christ, he uses this word, huperetes. Now, let's break that word down for a minute because it's much more interesting than just servant. The hooper part, the prefix part of that word, moved into the English language as hypo. Any nurse will tell you that hypodermic means under skin. So hypo has the sense of under to it. So the prefix of this word is under. But the last half of this word is the standard Greek word for rowing. Being in a boat, remember this is a culture that is active in fishing. They're surrounded by seas. They spend a lot of time on the water. And there has to be somebody, if there's a few of you going out fishing, somebody has to do the rowing. But when you put it together, it's under rower. And so this designates the slaves that were in the bowels of the ship moving to a drumbeat all in unison, rowing the boat. The captains and the high and the mighty would be standing on the deck of the ship, but underneath there were under rowers just rowing away, slaving away at keeping the ship moving. Okay, well, Paul said, when you think of us, think of us as an under rower. Think of us as the slaves who are just moving the ship. That's how you should think of us. We're not the high and mighty. We're not up on the deck giving commands. We're just rowing this thing. And then he says, and we are servants of Christ. Oikonomos is the word. It, it actually means oikos, the, the word for a house or a home. And then the word nomos, which also does mean law or mean Christian teaching, but it also means the person who, in a home, does the distribution, the one who distributes the food or the money or whatever. So consider us the one who does the distribution. Consider us as the under rower. By the way, it's the same word that Paul uses when talking about deacons within the church. But here he applies it to himself. When you think of me, he says, don't think of me as being something special where you would say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Instead, think of us as merely servants distributing the things of God to you. Think of us as under rowers. We are servants. We are slaves who are just keeping this thing moving. So Paul went from an exalted status all the way down to think of us as merely servants. So that being the case, since we are the stewards, the distributors of the mysteries of God, I didn't write it up on the board, but mysterion, mysteries, means essentially the unrevealed truths. Things that are true that are now In the course of time, according to God's goodwill, these are things that now we are going to reveal to you. Like, Jesus died for Gentiles. That was news. 
Up until then, the Israelites always believed that when Messiah came, he was going to save Israel. He was going to establish Israel, make a kingdom for Israel. He was going to rule over Israel from Jerusalem. And now Paul is saying the finished work of Christ is also effective for Gentiles. And these were mysteries, things that had not been revealed up until that time. So Paul said, I know this is a big jam-packed verse. Paul said, when you think of us, think of us as under rowers and think of us as the distributors of the mysteries of God. Now see, that has a lot more content to it than you would see on the surface. Verse 2. And so if that's the case, if that's all we are, so in this case, moreover, It is required of stewards, same word, that one be found trustworthy. So now he's saying it's required of those that God has given his gifts to. God has given his mysteries to particular people. And those people are to distribute those things, those mysteries, those gifts. But it's required of us that we be found trustworthy. And I think in this context, it was important to Paul to not allow the Corinthians to lift him up, to not make him more important, because if he did allow that, he's not trustworthy, because only Christ is to be lifted up. And so he's saying, in this case, since I am a servant, since I am a distributor of the things of God, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, verse 3, but to me it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you. Now some of your translations, the King James will say, judged by you. But you'll see this third word I've written up here, anacrino. You know the word crino, we've talked about it before. That's a word for judgment, but Anacrino means to to scrutinize, to investigate, to interrogate, to determine. And so Paul is saying, I don't really need your examination of me. I know what I'm about. I know that I'm a servant of Christ. I know that I'm here to distribute the mysteries of God. And I don't really need your judgment. It's a very small thing, he says, that you would examine me. And then he goes on and says exactly what I've been talking about. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. Now think about that. Because he's talking about looking close examining, investigating, questioning, discerning. He's talking about figuring out, am I really saved? Am I not saved? Am I, am I keeping the law? Am I not keeping the law? Am I in Christ? Am I not in Christ? Am I really examining himself? He says, you know, I'm so confident in Christ and what Christ has done for me, I don't even examine myself. Now, take into consideration that in that first century, As the Jews were moving from the law into grace, as they were still zealous for the law but believing in Christ, as they were 
battling that transition in time from law to salvation through grace, through faith, well then Paul was constantly being examined by the Jews who would say, you're not keeping the law. You're not advancing Moses. And so it's important that Paul would say, I don't care if you examine me. Here, I'll put it in the modern nomenclature for you. Because I get lots of email (laughs) from people who want to accuse me of being some form of antinomian. And they accuse me and say, you don't do this. You don't keep this. Especially because I have a video series out on the internet that says that tithing is not a New Testament principle. It's not a New Covenant teaching. It's just not. And oh, does that upset people? Because there are lots and lots of churches that are dependent on that 10% to 30% that they get from their congregation by imposing guilt on the congregation and telling them, if you don't tithe, God's going to get you. And so they go to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and they yank out Malachi verses to support the idea of tithing. Well, Because I am convinced that the tithe was a tax that was placed on Israel for the support of the uh, priesthood and for the widows and orphans and is not a New Testament principle. There are lots and lots of people who write to me and say, how dare you? You can't say that. If my people don't tithe, our church will close down. Do you know that we've been in existence for more than 15 years? We are debt free as a church. And we have money in the bank. And we have never once imposed a tithe on anybody. Because I believe Paul, when he says, let a man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. That's the escape clause. You can't write that and at the same time believe in tithing. So I don't think that Paul advanced the idea of tithing. My point is, the people who advance the idea of tithing as a, as a judicial act. If you want to give 10%, fine. If you want to give 20%, fine. If you want to give 30%, fine. But as far as a judicial tithe or God will curse you, Christ has already become a curse for us. That's right. That's right. And so tithing is not imposed on the church. Okay, I don't mean for this to be a lecture on tithing, but my point is that's a real common place where people attack me and say, oh, you are teaching people not to tithe. And I say, yes, because we're free from the law. We're not under that covenant. We're not going back to Sinai. We're not under the curse. We are free in Christ. And I believe that if Christ is in you, the Christ who gave his life, If God is in you, the God who gave his son. If the Holy Spirit is in you, the Holy Spirit that gives you life. That the giving doesn't stop when it gets to you. God gave, Christ gave, the Holy Spirit gave. If he's in you, you're going to be a giver. And you're going to give generously. And so I I believe all of that. And it has certainly served us well for 15 years. And so we're not in any way under the law, but people don't like it when I say that. When I say we're free from the law, delivered from that law and from that curse, Christ has taken those ordinances that were against us and he nailed them to his tree. When I say that out loud, 
all of which is biblical. But when I say it out loud, people get very upset because they want to cling to some part of the law. And then what's the next thing they do? Examine me. Judge me. The same thing that happens to all of you. So Paul's attitude is, I don't care. It's a very small thing if I'm judged by you or if I'm judged by another human. Even if I'm judged by a human court, I don't care. Now, it's not that Paul isn't thinking about the reality of judgment. It's that he doesn't care if humans judge him. He cares very much about God's judgment of him. But because God is satisfied with him through the finished work of Christ, well, then he's fine. Look, if you're okay with God, you're okay. If you don't get along with somebody who's going to point at you or judge you, sneer at you and call you names, which when I was growing up, is this true of the rest of you? When I was growing up, I always heard sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Not true now. Now you just say some words and people are like, you hurt me. You hurt my, I need a safe space. Give me a lollipop. I mean, (laughs) you can't say anything anymore. Paul does not care that human beings judge him. Read the next verse. Here's the reason. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined or judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself because, verse 4, for I am conscious of nothing against me. Do you hear that? Do you hear the freedom in that? Here's Paul, who was under the law, Pharisee of the Pharisees, Hebrew of the Hebrews, studied at the feet of Gamaliel, keeping the law and even bragging that before the law he was blameless. And yet he could say, this transition could happen so that he could say, now that I'm in Christ and Christ is in me, I'm not even aware of anything that's against me. And I think if we ever got a hold of that mindset... We could be free, free, free indeed. I mean, what did Jesus mean when he walked around saying, whom the sun sets free is? Free indeed. He meant something by that. And if the sun has set you free, then you are, in fact, free indeed. Look, if he satisfied God's standard, if he fully accomplished everything necessary for your salvation, and he utterly and completely redeemed you by paying the ransom price for sin, well, that's why Paul would say when Christ returns the second time, he comes back without regard to sin. That's not why he's coming back. He came the first time to deal with the sin problem. But when he comes the second time, he's coming to get his people, and then he's coming on judgment in his enemies. But he's not coming back to deal with the sin problem. Why? Because he did it. He did the sin thing. He took care of the sin debt. And we still walk around every day thinking, oh, I hope God didn't see that. Oh, I hope I'm not being judged for that. Oh, I hope I'm okay. You are. You're okay. You're okay with God because if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, 
God is completely satisfied in what Christ did for you. And when you get a hold of that, then you will really love Jesus. You will really thank Jesus, worship Jesus, praise Jesus for everything that he did. Because I keep saying over and over again, you can't do it. You've got nothing. You can't do it. But he so completely did it. He so utterly fulfilled the law. He so completely paid the price for sin that it's not even an issue that God's going to bring up again. What did we hear this morning from Tyler? God's going to cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. Proof again that God understands compass points. (laughs) If he had said north and south, you can go so far south that you're going north again. Right? You can go so far north that you crest the North Pole and you're heading south again. But east and west, if you start going east, you can keep going east the rest of your life. God understood that. As far as the east is, how far is that? How far is east? It's infinitely long from west, which is infinitely long. That's how far God has removed your sin. So Paul could say, I can't think of anything against me. I am conscious of nothing against myself. And yet, I'm not by this The NASB says, I'm not by this acquitted. So here's the the thought. Paul is saying, I'm not justified by the fact that I can't find anything against me. It's this word right here, dikaiu. That DK base means justice, righteousness. It shows up in words like dikaiusene, justification. And so... He's talking about God justifying people. And he says, I'm not justified by the fact that I can't think of anything against me. My clear conscience doesn't justify me. I'm justified by God who actually does do the judging and the discerning and the figuring out and the examining. He's the one who has completely been satisfied in the finished work of Christ. Therefore, I am justified. You get his argument? I'm not conscious of anything against myself. And yet, I'm not by this acquitted, dikayu. I am not justified by the fact that I can't think of anything, but the one who examines me, and he goes back to the exact same word, anacrino. He goes back to Anacrino, the exact same word that he used earlier in order to say, I don't examine myself, and I don't care if you examine me. He uses that word to say, God's the one who examines me. So, I'm not conscious of anything against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who does examine me is the Lord. So what's his conclusion? Why did he say all that? All of that, believe it or not, is Paul's introduction. Okay, he's getting to the point. Thank you for enjoying that. Thank you. He's making a really important point here. Remember, there's all this dissension in Corinth. Remember, there's these factions. 
There's these differences. I'm of him and I'm of him. He's trying to bring about unity. So he's using himself as an example. God is the one who examines me. I don't care if anyone else examines me. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment. And this time he uses Crino. This time he's talking about ultimate judgment. Final judgment. God's judgment. The quick and the dead. Don't go on judging each other. Because it's not up to you. Here, I'll make it easy. If you had met me in my 20s, you would not like me. I know some of you don't like me now. But so, no, it's a joke. But in my 20s, when I was traveling with a rock and roll band, you would have looked at me and said, heathen. And you'd be right. And you would have said, lost heathen. Because everything about me sure seemed that way. I mean, my ego was the size of Texas. I mean, when you play in front of 30,000 people and you're the loudest, best-lit person in the room, your ego goes nuts. And so if you had seen me in my 20s, you would not have believed I was a safe person. Yet, before the foundation of the world, God wrote particular names in the Lamb's Book of Life, and he never erases names from that book and it turns out that my name was in there. So even though you would have assumed that I was an unsafe person, you would have been wrong. Because God knows what he's doing with everybody. And you don't know what God's doing with everybody. And since you don't know what God's in the enterprise of doing with everybody, it's not your place to judge anybody. You just don't have the right. You don't have the authority. You don't have the jurisdiction. There were people, I'm sure, in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified who would have looked at the two thieves on either side of him and said they're rightly judged and rightly condemned. After all, they're malefactors, they're thieves, they're, their murderers were killing them. And yet, at the last minute, the one thief turned to Jesus, knew who to look to, and it was impossible for him to get down and do anything. He couldn't join a church. He couldn't be baptized. He couldn't, whatever your requirements are for salvation, he couldn't do it. He couldn't get baptized. He couldn't do it. All he could do was look to Jesus. And he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay, so what about all those people who not only judged this malefactor, they judged him so severely they nailed him to a chunk of wood. That's how much they had judged him. And yet he was God's. And yet he belonged to God. And in the sovereignty of God, that man lived a horrible life, his whole life, so that he would just be lucky enough to be crucified next to Jesus, the Lord of life. And that he would be converted on the cross and have a more sure guarantee from Jesus than anybody in this room has had. Why? Because God's sovereign and God saves people at any point that he pleases. So knowing that, since we know that, should we really be judging people? No. So Paul says, 
Therefore, do not go on passing judgment. Look at the next phrase, before the time. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So Paul wasn't looking for the praise of men. I do think that far too many people who are in the ministry are looking for the praise of men. Jesus did say, woe to you when, woe to you when, when all men speak well of you. Thank you for climbing into my brain. (laughs) Woe to you when all men speak well of you. What does that mean? Well, if you're a man pleaser and men speak well of you, then you're in trouble. So, There are always going to be people who oppose us. There are always going to be people who don't agree with us. There are always going to be people who don't know the things of God and are actively opposing the things of God. But Paul says, I don't need their praise. I don't need your judgment. I don't need your appraisal of me. I don't need any of that. I only care that God judges me, that God appraises me, that God praises and advances me and therefore it's a small thing to me if you have an opinion for or against me when you say I'm of Paul I don't care about that when the Jews say Paul's teaching the Gentiles to believe in the Messiah I I don't care about that I only care that I'm satisfying my Lord so don't go on judging because the day is coming and that's the day of Christ's return And when he returns in judgment, he will gather his church and he will judge his enemies. And that is up to him. It's not up to you. Here, we'll we'll test that theory. Let's say that a Christian here decides that he's going to start judging people. Okay. Do you have the ability to do the two-edged sword out of your mouth thing? Um, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. And we'd all be massively surprised if you did. So we know that you can't. So therefore, Jesus can do what you can't do. Can you look into the hearts of other men and decide what their, what their well-being and bad doing is? No. No, you can't. Well, then you can't judge, can you? But Jesus, who knows the minds and the hearts of human beings, who has the ability to judge in righteousness, he's going to judge the quick and the dead. So Paul is essentially saying, leave it up to him. He'll do it. We read that in the Old Testament and the New. God saying, vengeance is mine. I will recompense. God will do the judging part. Now let me add before anybody hears this and says, oh, but Pastor Jim, what about, I'm making a typing motion with my hands because someone will immediately email me about this. Paul does say that proper discernment, where theology is concerned, the proper judgment and discernment where our lifestyle is concerned, that's all an appropriate reaction to Christ and to our knowledge of salvation. But judgment of anybody's eternal state, thinking that you know who the saved are and the lost are, that's not your jurisdiction. You got the difference? We hear bad theology. When we hear bad theology, we're called to discern it. 
and respond to it. We are also called to be ready to give a defense to everyone who sees the hope within us and to do so with gentleness and reverence. We're, we're called to, to expound the good theology, but the good theology, the sound doctrine, the whole, the healthy teaching that Paul advanced, that's something that we are called to do because we have been saved and we know the difference between the good and the whole and the right and those things that are milk and wheat and chaff and going to burn up. So we are called to discern those things, but we are never called to decide who is saved and who is not. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness. (laughs) Okay, this is one of the standard biblical concepts that the people who sin, people who do evil things, prefer to do them in the dark. You know, when nobody's looking, when nobody can see me, that's the time that I'm going to rob a store. Very seldom does somebody rob a store in bright daylight. They're going to do their breaking and entering at night. They're going to do it in darkness. Well, when Christ comes, he's going to reveal those things that have been hidden by darkness. He's going to bring those things to light, which I will again say Christian can't do. He's going to bring to light hidden things. So his judgment is going to be a proper and a right judgment based on the realities of what people actually did and thought and The activities that they were engaged in, when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Okay, now it goes far beyond just how did you act, but what was in your heart? There is a a proverb that says that a high look and a proud heart is sin, and even And even, the King James says, even the plowing of the wicked is sin. And you think, plowing of the wicked, that's that's a standard activity. That's yoking up some ox and getting out there to plant some stuff. What's wrong with that? It's because it's being done by wicked men. So everything they do, everything they think, every intention of their heart is wicked before God. Even when they're doing something mundane, it is wickedness. Okay, so the intention of your heart matters. Remember how often Jesus said, you've heard it said, and then he would quote the law. And then he said, but I say unto you, and there were examples like he would say, um, you've heard it said, thou shall not commit adultery. And so people would walk around thinking, Did it. Didn't commit adultery. Spent my whole life not committing adultery. That's me. Jesus raised the standard and said, but I say, here's my rule. Here's my law. I say, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty as an adulterer. So he went past the activity all the way to your heart. And in so doing, he made everybody guilty. He leveled the playing field. Even the people who thought, I've kept the law, were guilty before Christ. And therefore, he can rightly judge people because he sees the intention of their heart. 
Now, if the intention of your heart is Godward, if the intention of your heart is to praise and glorify Christ, to advance the Christian cause, if that's the intent of your heart, and Christ has died for your sin debt, and Christ has taken up residence inside you, and you're in Christ and he's in you, well, then God is satisfied with you when he looks at the intention of your heart. But if you don't have Christ, then when God looks at the intention of your heart, it doesn't matter what you did. It matters everything you thought, every missed opportunity, every time you hardened yourself against somebody who had a need. God is going to check the intention of everything you thought and did. And that's a standard that no man can live up to. That's a standard that will end up condemning everybody. So again, I know I'm being redundant here and repetitive. I know I'm being redundant here and repetitive. I know I'm being redundant here and repetitive. Think about it again. If it is God who judges, if it is God who knows the intention of your heart and is going to bring to light the dark and hidden things, then really, what does it matter what any human being thinks? It just doesn't matter because they don't know the intention of your heart. They don't know the proclivities of your life or the the things that you hold dear or the things that you fear. They, They don't really know you. I gave this example a couple months ago. I have a black preacher friend who said to me, One time in a conversation, he said, Jim, you don't know what it's like to be black. And I said, nobody knows what it's like to be anybody. Yeah, I don't know what it's like to be black, but I don't know what it's like to be Jeff. Thank God. I don't know what it's like to... I don't know what it's like to be anybody else. I only know what it is to be me. And if I don't know what it is to be you, then I can't put judgment on you. But God who does know what it's like to be you, God who does know every hidden thing and the intentions of your heart, he is the judge of all the earth and he will do right. It's not your place. Don't go around judging. We're nearly done. So therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both Bring to light the hidden things of darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. I'm going to end on this note because I really like that. When Christ returns, when he comes to get his church, when Christ comes back to judge in righteousness, if he accepts you, If you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. If he comes and you see in him your redeemer, your Messiah. If you find in him the great joy that you've been waiting for your whole life. Then the praise that you do receive isn't the praise of men. Men are very good at giving you false praise. I've had people come up to me and say, 
Uh, yeah, you, you got, I believe you. I'm going to be here, man. You can count on me. I'll do everything. I'm next to you. I'm beside. I can't find those people. I have no idea what happened to them. Faint praise. John Riesinger years and years ago said that whenever anybody would say, Mr. Riesinger, you're teaching the truth. I'm for you. I'm in your ministry. I'm right there. You can count on me. He would say, time and the devil will tell. I like that phrase. Because time will tell whether people really mean it or don't mean it. Men are very good with faint praise. I appreciate the things that people say, but I do take it with a grain of salt. Because after all, it's just coming from another failed human. But when the God of glory, when the God who made heaven and earth, when the one who majestically and sovereignly rules over everything looks at you and says, come on in. (laughs) How good is that? (laughs) When he says, I've had your name written down since before the foundation of the world. I was determined to come and get you and now enter into the joy of your father. Come into the place where there's no more sickness, no more death, where God will wipe away every tear. Can you imagine a better praise than that? That's an eternal compliment. That's an eternal praise from God himself. And so Paul said, that's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. That's what my life is all about. Therefore, if men judge me, whatever. If men praise me, whatever. I'm out to get God's praise. I'm out to get God's satisfaction in what I'm doing. I'm out to get God's glory because God's in the enterprise of glorifying himself and I'm just an under rower in that enterprise making sure that he is lifted up above all things that Christ is glorified that all our prayers and all our praise and all our singing and it's all about him and not at all about human beings to the point where I just don't care if anybody says good or bad about me I care what God says about me. And if God says you're okay, you're okay. And if God says, come on in, it's been prepared for you since before the foundation of the world. You're one of the people that I gave to my son. Well, it just doesn't get better than that. So let that be the focus and the purpose of your life. And then you'll be satisfied with life as you find it. Does that make sense? Yes. yes Does that make sense? Yes. Sir. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. I know I'm being redundant and repetitive. <laughs> Are there any questions about that? It's very clear, isn't it? It's really very clear. So I hope that you leave this place singing. Thank God I'm free. Free, free, free. Give him the glory and the praise and the honor forever. All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. 
please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.